Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Today we have Matt, Tom, and Graham back together again. We are reassessing some of our predictions of coronavirus that we took three weeks ago and continuing our discussion of the oil spat between Saudi Arabia and Russia that is becoming more global by the day. So I hope you enjoy. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection. Brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. You're, you're muted. This is a really good start. <laughs> Everything is going extremely well. That was ridiculous, man. Uh, okay. Tom and Graham, thanks for coming. Uh, I guess I convened this meeting, so I'll kick us off. Obviously, we were together um, exactly three three weeks ago, or was it two two weeks ago? I can't even remember at this point. What what is time at this point anymore? <laughs> I, I heard someone say every day is like the day between Christmas and New Year's right now. Like you have no idea what day of the week it is. Like time doesn't matter. That's that's life. My mind is going. I can feel it. Right. So three weeks ago, we talked about, you know, obviously the coronavirus and made some predictions, some of which might not have turned out to be correct. But I think for the most part, we were correct to be very bearish about this thing. And we also talked about the spat going on in the oil market. And I just wanted to reconvene us and kind of uh, see where we are three weeks later. What has surprised you guys the most about these developments over the past three weeks? It's mostly with oil, it's just how much it's compounded. Like, yes, there hasn't been any cooperation, but we looked at this really from a Saudi Arabian point of view. I don't think we like really understood like, okay, when all these economies go down, their demand is going to go down. And so few people can produce oil below a $30 price tag that it's just going to be supply compressed, demand compressed, and it's just going to freeze. And the effect on the U.S. economy is going to be obviously ridiculous, but we haven't even seen countries like Brazil or India totally shut down, which is something like 8% of global oil demand. So the compounding issues with that, and that is beyond the fact that there are 10 million people unemployed, um, is yes, we've seen discussions, but we haven't seen progress. Right. And I think the, the most interesting part of this topic is the fact that it's just discussions. What we are literally seeing is, uh, you know, it's a very classic uh, scenario that happens when the oil price starts dropping for obvious, um, you know, market structural reasons is that we see the actors just trying to literally jawbone the price higher with empty, you know, with the just the empty th- uh, threat, I guess you could say, or empty um possibility of of all of a sudden more uh production cuts just having it out there as kind of this thing that hanging over the market is enough to support the price and so literally on words backed up by no policy changes we saw brent go up by 40 percent it's really uh unprecedented to see jawboning have that big of an effect on the market um and i think that we're going to continue continue to see it uh there was a really interesting little kabuki theater that went on on the russian side where uh you know trump made his whole thing about how he tweeted i believe i oh i got uh mbs to talk to putin and he said that we're gonna 
looking at 10, 10 billion in, in cuts. And, and then at first, Dmitry Pet- Peskov's Putin's press secretary goes, no, no such conversation has taken place. And then today, Putin came out and said, oh, no, I wholeheartedly agree with, with President Trump that we, there, these cuts need to happen. But he didn't give any specifics about, he didn't say Russia's going to cut. Or, so it's all, it's all just this aspirational, and it's, it's all, I mean, it's predictable, but it's almost disappointing the fact that the market responds to this mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, and that's the thing about oil cuts. Like, oil cuts is like, you know, okay, we need to uh, donate more to charity. And everyone's like, oh, that's a great idea. Like, we should. And then they're like, okay, well, why don't you start? And like, whoa, 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 let's get the ball rolling, you know, someone else should do it. Everyone wants oil to be cut, but no one wants, usually Saudi Arabia is the one holding the bag there because really their price production is so low that it doesn't matter. Russia has never really collectively cut oil besides like once in 2016. And that was because the prices were getting so low and their economy was dying that they needed to. And their economy still went down 3% over two years. So that's what it takes for Russia to actually cooperate. So, And then when you say 10 to 15 million barrels, I assume that's total because that's pretty much like 75% of what Saudi Arabia and Russia do to, together. So you're taking 10 million out of the 100 million that's demanded daily who? Who is doing that? Russia won't. America won't. Saudi Arabia, like, wants that to happen. But they just screwed everyone over for two months. Like, no one's going to be, like, doing a charitable thing to increase MBS's place in the economic right. world. Right. I mean, I, I'll tell you who's going to take the $10 million off the, the, the table. It's the United States. And uh, it was really interesting to watch how, as I believe it was Whitting Petroleum, which was a, a Bakken... North Dakota shale company that had all kinds of other problems, but they went bankrupt, but literally rippling through Russian oil industry and, you know, big papers, telegram channels, whatever. It was like a, it was like a cheering. It was like a rallying cry. It was like the first, yes, we, you know, the first victory in the shale battle against the United States. It it was, it was literally framed in that terms and it was like celebrated. (laughs) Um, So, you know, and so they they have this expectation that there's going to be more news like that to come and they very well may be right. And if American shale companies do uh, bankrupt at that pace and that quickly, then who, who, who knows how quickly production could fall. And I've been I've been reading reports talking about there's a chance we get to negative oil prices. There's a chance there's so much supply and the demand shrinks so much that you're going to have to pay just to hold oil. Like it's going to be that extreme. And we're already seeing if you're looking at the tickers of some of uh, bigger oil oil tanker companies, their stock is going down when there is good oil news. Because if they start acting like tanker companies again, they're less profitable than if they act like uh, storage companies. Which is the last thing anyone wants is to store your oil in a tanker. It's really expensive. But there's nowhere to put oil. There's going to be a point where there is a glut and, com- and countries are going to have to do extreme things just to not dump it in the ocean. It is getting that severe. Right. And I, I think it's also interesting to see what Saudi Arabia is doing during this whole thing. Saudi Arabia, Saudi Aramco, I should have uh, shared it with you guys before we watched, but they put out this really slick, beautiful, beautifully shot and beautifully written commercial, basically, advertisement where they talk about how during, the, during this global crisis, we are going to provide the world with cheap oil and we are going to, you know, it's like it's, it's their economic gift to the world during 
the these you know econ- the economic hardship of coronavirus. I mean, it's like almost laughable in its bluntness and kind of its directness. I mean, if something if something fucks over Iran, Saudi Arabia can be very charitable. I think that is definitely in their mo. Yeah. So how do you see, what do you see the next steps? And I mean, you know, we're just guessing at this point, so anyone can jump in. I know Trump is meeting with the heads of American oil companies, which is totally like the fact of American oil companies acting as a collective cartel is like an insane development, obviously. Um, Saudi Arabia is having an OPEC plus meeting today. So something will come out of this. What do you think? Will? Yeah, I mean, we should say off the bat that these, you know, these conversations that are reportedly taking place about you know, I've heard terms like, what, what, what was it called? It was like Texas plus OPEC and this idea that, you know, like just how they came up with all the different names of Brexit for each European country. Now all the names that of you, of you can call that you can call OPEC with the inclusion of the United States or Texas or whatever. And, you know, it's a, we should just take this moment to acknowledge how problematic it would be if all of a sudden the United States, what is it? The Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and rules against joining cartels, it would be a total flip for the United States policy to all of a sudden embrace cartel economics and join into these uh, an international uh, commodity cartel. But there's a serious kind of, there's basically uh, discussions going on that suggest that that will informally take place, which is really, really concerning. And I mean, just from a you know, economic standpoint, Trump has to do this. Oil is 5% of U.S. employment and probably two to three times that by adjacent industries or financial flows. You cannot go into November with $20 oil. And who knows what employment is going to be by that point. But we're not even really seeing the fiscal effects of companies not being able to move oil. That's going to come later. It's but hold on, I think that the, if you're the Russians or the or the Saudis, you think that you're secretly helping Trump, even if he doesn't know it himself yet, or even if he doesn't think it, because you think that you're giving Trump cheap oil going into an election year, cheap gas for the whole country. And so, what if it hurts, you know, North Dakota and Texas what, that you're going to win anyway, right? So, you know, if you're the Russian and 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 the, and the Saudis, this might be the most kind of um, uh, it, it's almost it's so in front of your eyes that you wouldn't even recognize recognize it as election interference or election help, but it could be um, in certain policy circles a way of them thinking about um, helping uh, the president economically going into a re-election year, which yeah. is another interesting wrinkle. And I think you know pre-shale, I totally agree. I don't think there's another way to view it. I just think. The huge part of our recovery from the last financial crisis was shale. The fact that we had dirt cheap credit, people could do ridiculous things like drill two miles down and drill a mile over and smash up these little rocks and somehow create oil. That doesn't happen in a booming economy because people are like, guys, like there's other ways to make profit. What are you doing? And so this is a huge part of America now and going forward. And it doesn't jive with $20 oil. Yeah. And I think that the U.S. is already taking all kinds of uh, steps that we haven't seen in a long time. One of them is the Texas Railroad Commission considering quotas. Again, um, you probably wouldn't, maybe you would know, but the U.S. has had oil quotas um, for domestic producers, but that was decades ago. 
And mm-hmm. so, I mean, this is just a really, you know, fascinating time from kind of a, a history of econ- economic standpoint to see, you know, these pieces of what we thought was economic history are now coming back and becoming part of the the the, the policy reality again. Yeah, I was going to say we. I mean, uh, the OECD just came out with uh, predictions for economic growth looking forward here, and I think they're about the most negative predictions that they've been since the 2009 recession. So especially going into a, an election year like we are, I, I know it's something the voters can be paying attention to. So like Tom, like Thomas said, it's like, you know, going in with $20, barrels uh, oil is just going to be very, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely tough during an election year. Yeah. And I think going back to Tom's kind of your question that you just posed a second, where, how does this all end up? I do think that um, at some point during the summer, it, it'll just, once we get into the, the potential of negative oil prices or any, or that threat, uh, I think that the pressure will be too high for uh, Putin and Saudi Arabia to find a, a face-saving deal to get out of this, because it looks like what happened here again. Just to kind of you know repeat or echo what we've said earlier is that uh, the Russians had not liked the OPEC Plus deal and they wanted to get out and they made plans to get out before they knew how bad this was going to be. At the beginning, when they saw it was bad, they thought it was going to be a double whammy and that it was going to help them. Now they now they realized it was it was it's even worse, and so in, instead of being uh, a helpful factor in this oil war, it's actually going to hurt them. So I think that the Russians are going to are going to save face and try and try to get out of this thing in the midsummer. But I don't know, maybe you disagree with me. Yes, I pretend not to. I was going to say we'll, we'll have to come back in a few weeks and see if uh, that prediction is on point. Yeah, I thought this over very carefully, and I've almost come to a conclusion. Diane ain't much of a living boy. And I think that moves moves pretty well into getting to our next point and how, yes, at some point everyone's going to have to come to the table and negotiate and everyone's going to kiss and hug and have an oil cut, whatever. We still haven't solved the coronavirus, okay? And we can't just, you know, put magical economic fixes to everything. We still don't understand how this is going to end up or how long it is. And uh, great, we cut oil, but if demand goes down to 60 million barrels or whatever, like it doesn't matter how much you cut, like it's not going to be enough. And uh, one of the things I sent to you guys was uh, just a report looking how every central bank, uh, every, you know, you know, every government has dealt with the uh, economic backlash to this. And Graham, if you want to jump in. Uh, because it's totally uneven. Some people are pumping in the U.S. trillions. Some are mustering nothing. So if you want to jump in on the European yeah. response. So so that's definitely one of the things that surprised me right off the bat is obviously for anybody that's been paying attention to European news, some large comprehensive uh, monetary policy solution hasn't necessarily been put in place by the EU. The European Central Bank put $750 billion into European markets. And that's kind of a first step. But yeah, so basically this situation, while they're debating things, it's honestly uh, a country to country basis here. So if you look, obviously, yeah, the U.S. is leading the way, $2 trillion. In Europe, Germany is definitely stands out. They created an 156 billion euro supplementary budget, and that's going toward things, uh, you know, increased relief to low-income families, relief to those who've lost income, you know, threatened with eviction under the crisis. And then one of the commonalities uh, between Germany's and a lot of the other plans 
is taxes that would be paid by businesses or by households are obviously being deferred or delayed. Some of that funding is going to hospitals. Yeah, it's it's kind of one of those things. And then you have Italy. Italy's at about 25 billion euros for their fiscal stimulus. So you see just right there, I mean, you have an $125 billion discrepancy between how these countries are handling things. And you move over to Eastern Europe and uh, it gets even less. You know, obviously certain economies are larger, hit hard. I mean, the Czech Republic, I believe, has about 4 billion worth of euros that they put in as a financial assistance package. And they actually put something in as well. In the US, obviously, everybody's been talking about this $1,200 dividend for everybody, essentially. The Czech Republic put something in similar to that. So basically, on a monthly basis, people that have stopped work due to kind of government containment efforts, uh, everybody's owed 15,000 Czech Karunas, which is about 590 US dollars. So on a monthly basis. So it definitely, it's, it's, it's varied by country. I know Poland was supposed to implement a sugar tax, a tax on sugar. And I believe that was supposed to take effect this year. And they've pushed that off until at least 2021. So it's definitely, yeah, it's, I would say it definitely varies by the country. And it's almost every country is kind of becoming a character of themselves and every entity. And this is just, if you could pick a something to depict the strength and weaknesses of the EU, it's this. Exactly. And and the interesting thing too is that a lot of a lot of you know disagreements in the past, you look at East versus Western Europe, a lot of the fiscal differences are actually Northern Europe and Southern Europe have really had a lot of time or a lot of uh, trouble cooperating. Um, a lot of the countries in the uh, in Northern Europe are comfortable with the kind of stimulus put forward by the European Central Bank, where and they're typically a little bit more fiscally conservative than southern European countries like Spain and Italy, who historically, like you said, it definitely talks to their speaks to their character a bit more. But they do rely more on those, you know, large packages, Greece, same thing. And so they're fighting for obviously more steps, you know, taking more steps here to keep pumping money. I know that Spain and Italy were in favor of almost like a Marshall plan style package to also be put in place to build on that 750 billion euro stimulus put in by the European Central Bank. And Matt, have you looked into, um, you know, what Russia is doing or more things in the Eurasian area of how people are or how governments are choosing to recover? Yeah, uh, I was actually just on a this uh, conference call today by the Atlanta Council, which is a DC think tank, uh, talking about Russia's coronavirus uh, response. And yeah, the Russia Russia has uh, announced a nationwide um, quarantine, except for a, a few, you know, essential workers until the end of the month for the whole country. And they will totally cut off all public transport uh, of any kind with all other countries, um, I believe, by tomorrow. And so it'll they're really just going to lock down. And I know that domestically they've been, you know pumping up all kinds of propaganda about how good their strong measures are going to help them and save them. But I think on the other hand, you know, this is not a very comfortable place for Putin. He is not a crisis manager and he has had a very disastrous track record with crisis management in the past. And so I think that, you know, I mean, the the jury's still out to see what effect this will have on uh, the regime in the, in the near and near to long term. But I don't think that anybody is particularly saying that they're one of the leaders in terms of the effectiveness of their response or anything like that. Until this point, it seems like the the approach has been cover up corona deaths by calling them something else and just under test people and you know act like the the problem isn't as big as it actually is, which is you know par for the course when you look at 
uh, Russian history, whether it's you know uh, Chernobyl or what whatnot. And it seems like right now Russia's in that belt of countries, kind of in the low mid thousands of cases, but the deaths haven't taken off yet. But we've just seen this steady stream. Yeah, but I, but I should say that that I mean the Russian response isn't substantively different from the Chinese or the Brazilian response to other other BRIC countries. Where I was praising the Russian response when we talked last time, they shut down borders immediately. Right. For example, I mean I'll I'll talk about Brazil for a second. I know that Bolsonaro has been his support has been collapsing even from his own governors who supported him from around the country because he has been denying coronavirus. He's been saying it's a flu. Um, he's been denying them resources and he's been sharing home remedies. And these governors who used to support him were like, no, like we need massive help, but he doesn't, but he wants it to, to be their problem. And he doesn't want to, to lose politically for this something. And it's not substantively different although the political system is very different than China, right? Where you had the original whistleblowers were punished and now you have the government kind of denying and playing down the statistics and the problems. And there was a a really great piece on um, the New York times about how even the, you know, the, the U S government and agencies like the CIA are hard at work to, to figure out the real China numbers because there's such a web of government lies. And so nobody, you know, you know, they can't even figure it out. And so I think that the, the, the responses we're seeing have been pretty par for the course when you look at countries outside of the, uh, the democratic West, so to speak. And the big concern, I think, when you bring up Brazil is just the emerging market aspect of all this. We talked about how oil demand is going to be affected, but these are countries that benefit almost entirely from shipping commodities to bigger developed countries. If bigger developed countries aren't buying commodities, smaller ones are not making them. And if they're quarantined, they probably don't have broadband when they go home, so they can't work. So you're, and on top of all of this, they can't do QE. Uh, like no one really does QE well, and they can't do it at all. So there's not going to be any money going back. They're going to the ones that kind of see runaway inflation. And by the time they go back to maybe potentially produce, it's going to be impossible to actually trade um, and get decent prices. I was going to say just real quick, I like you mentioned uh, shipping and everything like that. A lot of these developing countries, I, a big thing that they rely on is the travel industry too, which can't be ignored. And obviously over a hundred countries have been hit with concrete travel restrictions and quarantines. So I, there are few industries, if any at all, that are hit harder than travel, which is a, a, kind of an intuitive you know, ex- explanation. But for especially for developing countries, it's kind of a double whammy. You see with the oil, with the shipping, with travel, it's definitely, unsurprisingly, it's going to hit them pretty hard. And the financial and monetary, or the fiscal and monetary mechanisms that they have available are not necessarily, they can't do what Germany does. Germany can throw 156 billion euros at this, but not everybody can do that. They don't have the capacity. And a good example of that, I was just looking into Turkey's numbers, which have exploded. And Turkey is one of the rare countries that on the exterior and the interior that are run by tourism to a big degree, the resort areas, their big cities, but also you get the history internally and that's 10% of their economy I'm pretty sure and that's you know they fancy themselves as kind of the actual you know we're the fifth biggest economy in Europe they like to say they're in Europe sometimes and not other times but that the countries that were on these huge growth paths that had huge credit problems that are going to get crushed by this like the ramifications that are going to linger for a long time
And so, I mean, uh, how have you guys thought of the U.S. response so far in terms of where we were three weeks ago when we were, I think we were probably a couple thousand cases, but, you know, we still had travel plans. Life was a lot different. Obviously, it's been bad, but it's been bad everywhere. How much can we actually victimize or not victimize, blame U.S. governance and the uh, economic response so far? Why doesn't the government do something? That's what I'd like to know. What can they do? They're only people just like us. People my foot. They're Democrats. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I was I was just going to try to kind of give, give myself a little I told you so moment because I, I remember that before the end of, of school, I was you know telling people, oh, yeah, hey, this is our last class of the year. And, oh, yeah, we're not going to have school for the rest of the semester. And that was met with so much vitriol. And people were like, are you kidding me? Or that's ridiculous. And I was like, I would just say to them, well, look, if if we're going to be anything like what's going on in China, then this is the only logical conclusion of this. And so, I mean, before we even jump to the government response, I think it's just important to say that, you know, the private sector, I mean, whether we go from business to NGO or to, you know, um, whatever, everybody was slow to grasp the severity of this for whatever, for whatever reason. And so, why it is the government's responsibility to do precisely the things that you know organize us to for the collective action that we could never do ourselves. I think it's important to point out that you know our a lot of private institutions in our country were not adequately prepared for this, and they were still denying it. You know, denying the ramifications even when all their lights were blink, blink, blinking red, and it was very clear that what was going on in other countries was was going to come here. Uh, so that's something I think it's important just to kind of point out first, as far as the U.S. government response. Um, but I mean, I'm, I, I think that um, I'm I'm inclined to trust you know the career people at, um, at at NHS and their effectiveness to respond. The only troubling thing, in my estimation, that's going on is what what we is what we discussed earlier, which is just that everything's being delegated to the states precisely so that. You know the go- the federal government, i.e., the the head of the federal government, Donald Trump, is not seem to be blamed for any of the missteps taking place. Um, yeah, Graham, I don't know. You can add to that. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of interesting because when we started this, when we talked about this pretty similar question, and we talked about uh, you know one side of the political aisle is taking this very seriously, and they were you know almost we we I think we threw around the term almost alarmist, and then the other side, the administration was much more. Uh, relax. We got this handled. Um, you know, in the end of February, I think we had 15 cases in the U.S. President came out, said we got it under control, all that. And you can see how that kind of has evolved to where we are now, where I think a big concern for people is that little bit of the nonchalance has evolved a little bit into this, all this debate over why aren't test kits getting out quicker? Why don't people have more access to this? We got guys in the NBA, the, the Brooklyn Nets got tested real quick. You know, they were, they were in, they were out, they knew what was going on. And people saw that and they were like, where's all this for us? You know, this seems so easy. They get the results back. You know, Tom Hanks got it. They, so you can, it's interesting. I, I was just thinking about that, our talk three weeks ago, but we were saying, yeah, the president's a little bit nonchalant on it. And that's definitely kind of manifested itself into a little bit slow on the, you know, kind of dispersal of all these test kits. It's kind of interesting. I think that's probably the most controversial, one of the most controversial things for people to, you know, looking at right now. And it, yeah, I mean, that's why you have a strong federal government is so things aren't asymmetric in crisis. Like if, World War II happened, and it was just like, you know, California, you know, commit as much as you're comfortable. You know, we're not going to make you send men. We're not going to make you build tanks. Like, just, you know, do whatever you can. 
And, you know, that's led to, I know I have the numbers in front of me, you know, New York was super early, they were super alarmist, they were getting absolutely destroyed, but they have conducted more tests per capita than anyone. And then you have, I think, North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, and Arkansas, none of them have any shelter-in-place policies at all. They don't have a single county, a single city, a single town. Nothing has changed, and they have hundreds and hundreds of cases. And so it's, it's unlikely they're going to see the horrible effects of this. But, you know, there are fewer hospital beds per capita in those places. There are fewer hospitals um, in rural regions. You're just even 100 cases that are bad in the wrong area can be disastrous. Um, and then on the flip side, California has very few cases. California has conducted the second fewest tests per capita. They have 50,000 tests pending. They, there's something horribly wrong with their infrastructure, and they've been praised for how they've handled this when they're just sitting on all these tests because they don't have any throughput. So uh, it, it's been asymmetric. It's been completely no one's had any accountability, and I just think that's what happens when you just kind of throw your hands up and do a press conference every day. Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of it all ties in. Overall, I know people. It's obviously easy to criticize the government and to do. You know, it's an easy choice. But at the end of the day, it's it's somewhat of an unprecedented event. Yeah. So we're you know, you have to keep that in mind that it's it, this is a hard situation to handle. So, I mean, obviously, countries like Germany and South Korea that have had strong federal reaction to this, they've done pretty well. But again, you know, it, it's it's a tricky situation and we're kind of figuring it out along with the administration. So let's all straighten up and fly right. A buzzer took a monkey for a ride in the air. The monkey thought that everything was on the square. The buzzer tried to throw the monkey off his back, but the monkey grabbed his neck and said, now listen, Jack. Yeah, I, I'd kind of like to take the, the conversation into a, a, a new direction. I mean, how do you guys think this pandemic will change the world kind of going forward in the sense that this will be kind of a, when historians look back, this will be an event that that changed the world in, in a lot of ways. I mean, I read an article arguing basically that this event will be just that, in that, first off, what we're seeing is all around the world, we're seeing um, an increase in methods uh, by governments of control and monitoring of citizens' rights under the guise of, oh, yes, we need this information to protect you, right, to make sure everybody's obeying quarantine, so that's why we're going to monitor uh, metadata on phones, et cetera, et cetera, or even things like, you know, people are going to around the world wearing masks, like has been a practice in, in Asia for a long time. And certainly since SARS was kind of normal. Now, even in the Western world, people are going to, you know, wear masks, even not in an overt time of, of a epidemic or pandemic, you know, things, things of that nature or to the opposite. Will this lead to a new revival in kind of ideas of the worth of, human life and the, the the need to always have a government that's uh, vigilant and on guard uh, for these kinds of things. So I'd say I'm generally pessimistic on how people choose to benefit from crisis situations. Usually you have the vain and the ambitious, the people with cynical ends who actually get control of how things are going to come from this. But I would say just like, so if we're going to compare it to the last crisis, if you want to go to 9-11, 
How much has daily American life changed from 9-11? Our foreign policy changed dramatically. Probably how we view our government changed dramatically. If you want to look at spying on citizens and stuff like that, that is the starting point. How much our daily lives changed besides taking off our shoes to the airport? And I ask that to be kind of controversial, but generally, how much did it change our lives? A lot? Or is that the only like material thing can we think of? And then once Corona blows I, blows over, might I just shake hands less? I, I'm, I'm generally asking because I don't know. No, no, yeah. It, no, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think I would respond to that potential analogy by saying that in general, yes, I think it will be similar to to, to 9-11 in the sense that um, there will be a lot of changes and historians will look back on this as a lot of changes, but they won't necessarily be super noticeable, you know, in your kind of daily life in the sense that, you know, after 9-11, we had a massive explosion of the security state and the, the, the number of employees working in the national security and national defense, homeland security. We had the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security, right? And literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of new uh, federal employees across all kinds of agencies. And so um, and so I think that Corona could lead to something very similar where we see a much more robust um, NHS and a much more robust CDC and, 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 and things of that nature. But Again, you know, if there's, you know, X thousand more people working at CDC, does that affect your daily life? Probably not. It doesn't get felt, but it could have all kinds of certain um, effects that are very, very subtle. Yeah, I I actually I have a little bit of trouble comparing uh, something like 9-11 to the coronavirus, mostly because I see the implications is a little bit different. Um, I I think that on a social level, on a family household level, I do think 9-11 had a, a pretty large impact considering, you know, you have tens and thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of families that, you know, over the next couple decades had troops abroad, had family members abroad, uh, you know, fighting the war on terror and everything like that. Um, in addition to all the stuff, TSA and all that at home. Um, my main thing with Corona is, uh, I know for a social, yeah, social, it's a little bit harder to predict. Are people going to be shaking hands less or, you know, what are you going to see? I know that like we mentioned last time, we, we'd already seen it, even at the beginning, there were some, uh, uh, racially motivated incidents, um, against Asian Americans for this, uh, like nine 11, we had, you know, attacks on all types of communities. The Sikh community, um, also saw some of that. Um, but my thing for this is kind of on the economic side, I think it's going to be an interesting testing ground for some different policies. It's kind of a opportunity for an experiment here. Um, I know they, the European stability mechanism, it's already in place in Europe, um, that they're kind of debating, uh, you know, amending that right now. Um, to kind of make credit more easily accessible, a little bit looser. Um, I think it gives a chance to kind of test out these policies. You know, it's, it, you know, it's kind of game time for them. This is really a good opportunity to show what they're really made. So looking back, I think that the economic implications might be larger than necessarily the social ones. Um, just in general, uh, you know, just how, cause how governments are reacting and everything like that. I think that's a really good pushback and really good way to think about it. And of course, I mean, we're, we don't know how many people are going to die from this and we don't know what the geopolitical response is going to be. What is this going to get us into? How much are we going to cooperate with our countries after this? We don't know. And, but, you know, I don't think a cobbler in London was affected so much by the end of the 30-year war. You know, like these are huge, huge historical moments and maybe it doesn't matter if your life has changed that much because the actual landscape of the world has changed so much. 
And Matt, I know I've, I've had a couple beers and talked to you about MMT before. Uh, it, it, are we getting into a modern monetary theory moment here? What, what, what's happening? Well, well, first of all, why don't you why don't you give a little uh, blueprint or bumper sticker of MMT? Uh, I know that the the key policy implication of it is that you know the national debt of nations does not matter so much because it does not lead to the runaway inflation that uh, a you know classical economist had predicted, right? So, for example, in the United States, up until this crisis, um, we had the, the national debt had been exploding and exploding for really you know since the the nineteen nineties. Um, massively, trillions and trillions of dollars, but we were still not even meeting the inflation targets that the Fed was trying to get us to achieve. We weren't even inflating as much as we wanted to. And so that led to a lot of economists kind of reconsidering and saying, okay, well, does the national debt actually lead to all, all these problems and these, this inflation? Um, and, is it, and is it really so bad? And so there, now there's kind of been this new idea that the government um, should just you know write you know add some add some zeros to the computer in the basement of the Fed and just and be way more um, inclined to do all kinds of government spending as a form of economic uh, stimulus because the number of zeros in some computer doesn't you know that doesn't matter at the end of the day and so but the, the political dimensions of it are, are fascinating because now we have. Donald Trump and the Republican Party, which going back to Reagan, what it was, it was Reagan and the Republicans and Volcker who had this, who raised interest rates massively to try to stop um, stagflation, right? And now we have the the full circle of that, where the Republicans are are blowing up the debt and have basically, as a factual matter, embraced MMT. And I will say that the academic uh, economists who espouse MMT on Twitter are just are just elated. Because I mean, what makes them happy more than anything else is to see the people who are supposed to be opposed to their views, as a as a matter of policy, wholeheartedly embracing those views, right? And so um, I think a lot of economic historians are are going to look back at this time and say this this was the moment where kind of MMT really kind of got more and more credit. And I should say that even just uh, in 2018, two years ago. There was a huge internal debate within the Democratic Party about this, right? Where we had AOC, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, um, was trying to get rid of this rule called PAYGO that the that the Democratic establishment had um, espoused because the Democrats always wanted to show, no, look, it's the Republicans who who have blown up the debt. It's the Republicans who have always blown up the debt. It's the Republicans who have unfunded tax cuts, right? Uh, and it's always been the Democrats, going back to Clinton, Carter, et cetera, who have always uh, been more fiscally responsible and always tried to have funding mechanisms for new spending. And so a lot of the new uh, Democrats were saying, no, we, we, we embrace MMT and we don't, we, don't, we don't want to fiscally restrain ourselves when the Republicans don't at all. If they want them to fund something, they just fund it, right? And so, no, I think it'll be interesting to see how this kind of shakes out. And I think that perfectly captures Graham point, uh, Graham's point on how this is just changing, you know, kind of the economic, uh, what team you are at economically. And I think the biggest thing of what Trump has killed in his time, it is the fiscally conservative Republican. The supply side economic Republican is dead. They're not winning any elections. They have no representation in Trump's cabinet. And right now, their party is doing Bernie Sanders shit. Like, if you look at how this bailout is structured, I mean, it is 
comical uh, in terms of what, how much money they're creating, how quickly they created it, and how there's been no pushback. There's no, there's no voice being like, hey, are, are we sure we should be leveraging $5 trillion in debt to give to insolv- uh, illiquid companies? Is this a good idea? None of that has happened. It's probably not even going to be enough. Well, I mean, here, it's interesting. I mean, some of it, I, I would, I'm, I'd take a much more cynical tack on it and say that it is still alive in certain ways. I think one very telling example was after the $2 trillion stimulus that was passed by Congress uh, and signed by the president, immediately- uh, Trump came came out and said, "Oh, let's do infrastructure now. Let's do another two billion, another two billion. And Mitch McConnell immediately, no, 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 whoa, 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 walked it back. But <laughs> but it was almost comical in the fact that he had he had just been willing to do a two billion dollar stimulus if it was for Corona. If it was a two billion dollar with a with a T, I think. Oh no, excuse me, trillion. Uh, I've been mixing up my millions, trillions, and billions all day. But it, excuse me, a two trillion dollar." stimulus for corona why won't you do it for the for infrastructure and just generally right if you've already kind of intellectually conceded it why why does it only have to be for emergency situations so i think that but mcconnell and certain other republicans still they they had they have to as a as a they have to make in Russian, we would say not a deal right? You always have to make an appearance. You always have to go through the motions, and you have to act like you're still attached to some semblance of fi- of fiscal responsibility. Yeah, just to comment on that, I know that obviously, once when the government pumps in two trillion dollars to the economy in general, people tend to say, "Oh, this is crazy." You know, this is not Republican. This is not fiscal, and that's that's understandable for sure because it is a lot of money. Um, the only thing that I keep in mind here is that. Uh, Again, it's, an, it's this is a this is a thing that everybody's going through. Um, the U.S. is the world's biggest economy, so it kind of makes sense that that proportionally we'd be pumping you know that much in. I know that even even in Europe, a lot of constitutional limits on on budgets and deficits, the spending on this virus has actually been completely excused from that. Which I don't know the ins and outs of because I don't know how you can just excuse about that. But um, I mean, the the EU officially declared it like an unusual event outside the control of government. Right. So I think that a lot of the world is looking at this as what if you look at, well, that's not very, you know, fiscally conservative of them. You also have to kind of take in, into account, you know, the context here that, you know, a lot of countries are in the same situation and they're throwing money at this. We again, it's it's it's, it's unprecedented territory. There's there's something so European about calling this an unusual event. I, I just like that's exactly how they would classify this. I don't know why. It, it, you know, but you just look back to Great Depression and Hoover's leadership and Smoot Hawley. It just they're, they stuck to their economic principles so hardly. And there's a benefit to Trump when you don't really have strong principles. You're going to go with your intu- – that's not even a fault. He's, he's going to go with his intuition. His intuition is incredibly fluid. Um, and it just made sense to put a ton of money into this. And when you have 10 million unemployed in two weeks, it makes sense to do another two trillion in work projects. Is that what the Soviet Union did? Yes. Did it work out? No, because money, there's going to be a bill at some point, but I just have no idea when. And then this goes back to our first argument. None of this matters until we know when coronavirus is going to end. And we just don't, we have absolutely no clue. So, yes, we can do this stimulus now, and the stock market's going to be recovered shortly, but we can't just keep doing this. Or can we? I don't know. Does, any, does anyone want to volunteer to make a horribly uneducated guess on when, when yes. this will end? 
Yes. <laughs> uh, we might as well. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah now, yeah, now it's on my mind. I don't think it's going to end until we have a vaccine. I don't think we're going to be able to kill it over the summer. And I think it's going to come back in cold weather and still... It, well, first of all, it's never going to go away in northern U.S. states. You look at the countries that are affected now, it doesn't get any warmer than that in northern U.S. Um, and then it's going to come back in a storm in the fall. Yeah, I, I, yeah, generally, I think that that is probably, if there's anything like a consensus view, that's probably the, what it seems like the closest thing to it is, right? Won't die during the summer. Um, containment won't. It'll slow it down a lot, but it won't be if totally effective. And then if it's by any analogy with Spanish flu, we could get a second winter that's even worse. And it's even worse precisely because only the most durable and or deadly strains have survived. Because, right again, the definition of a pandemic is that we will all be exposed at some point um, or have survived and built up immunity. So, again, I think it's just curious to see, like, you know, where we are on this curve. Uh, I know that Wuhan's ending their lockdown, I want to say, what, mid-April? Or is it earlier than that? Uh, Have they already announced that? Yeah, I think so. They they said that they're actually they're they're locked down that's been in place for months now. Uh on that particular city, I believe they're they're removing it in in mid-April or they're re-reviewing it. That's um, incredible. Yeah, a week or so ago, Italy for the first time in a long time had seen a uh steady decrease in the number of, you know, deaths from the virus and new cases. I agree that yeah, with with both you guys that that it's going to be around for a long time. It could be dormant, but it's it's, you know, It'll move in waves, I think. But the craziness here of everybody's quarantine and staying inside of your apartments, I think if people are wondering about that, if I had to make a prediction about that, I would I would hope it doesn't go past May or June. Um, I think once we get into the summer months, hopefully they'll bring it back. Yeah, I know that for even for a lot of countries, kind of mid to late April is like a huge deciding point for a lot of people. I would say just in what scares me about making predictions is that when I look at the numbers for each country, I'm just seeing patterns. I'm seeing numbers get released at this hour. There are about a, a thousand then, and then 3,000 more are going to come out about 6 p.m. That's for some of the European countries. They're all about four to five to 6,000. What that tells you is throughput. So they're clearing this many at this time, then they're clearing this many more at this time. So I don't know if there are 4,000 new cases in Italy or there are 4,000 positive tests completed and they don't have the ability. They are not putting resources into expanding testing. They're just putting resources into keeping people alive. So it's so I've never felt more unsure about so many numbers being thrown in my face. It's just so it's it's so up to your discretion if you want to believe it or not. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I just like from a base, I mean, I know this time of year is necessarily the warmest time of year, but it is kind of crazy how countries like Spain and Italy, where you think would be climates that are not necessarily as conducive to the virus, have been crushed more than anybody else in the entire world with this. Um, and especially, I mean, they're, 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 they're advanced economies too, which is kind of crazy. It's not, you know, so that always, that kind of surprised me. If anything, I've learned more about global climates than anything. I was like, oh, Iran, it's got to be hot as shit there. And then I'm like, oh, wait, Iran's very mountainous. They actually have, like, pretty seasonable weather. I, w- I should have known this before. So, I mean, guys, we've covered a ton here. This has been a lot of fun. Um, any lingering things? Can we add in a little more positive note, maybe? A fun hobby you've picked up during I, Corona. I have like a random fact that I found. So according to BBC, like as expected, toilet paper and rice are like two of the most in-demand items, right? But the third one made no sense to me whatsoever. The third one, I guess I can kind of see this, they said was concentrated frozen orange juice. I don't 
think that's funny. We, yeah, I don't know why they mentioned that specifically, but yeah, that's what they said. It was toilet paper, rice, and frozen concentrated orange juice. I'm very confused. Couldn't bear it without you. Maybe this will be um, a chance for everybody to kind of do some self-introspection and kind of, um, because again, this is just really unprecedented historically. And I think you'll have a lot of people kind of all around the world um, who are going to all of a sudden kind of have this um, time on their hands and may, hopefully it'll allow them to either kind of, you know, reconsider their personal relationships or reconsider their professional lives or reconsider some aspect of their life. And hopefully that will, that kind of, uh, introspection will lead to some positive outcomes in, in people's um, uh, uh, lives. Um, so maybe that's some good that could come of this. Yeah, I think in, in general, I, I, I when, when this quarantine is lifted and people can go out and do what they want, I think at the very least, people are going to be a lot more appreciative of what we had before. Yeah, absolutely. Well, definitely more positive. I, I, I found my, I was trying to find an article where uh, in Russia and Germany, there's been a huge increase in uh, sex toys and condoms. So is that the introspection you're talking about, Matt? Yes, that's, that's the precise follow-up to my comment. Well, guys, thank you. Hopefully we have better news when we reconvene, but we'll see. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the 